gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come check out our wares, all the usual stuff, but I'm going to skip right ahead and just get to this because I'm looking forward to this, and so are a lot of listeners. One of, um, definitely one of our fan favorites is back. Uh, I believe this is his third appearance on the Remnant, so he's got two more to get the gold jacket. Um, and he is. People gave me a lot of criticism for coming out writing a book called Suicide of the West, and I used to joke that. Um, I could have called it why you should take a bath with a toaster. And um, lo and behold, uh, our friend, our fa- perhaps our favorite historian, Neil Ferguson, has, uh, has, has entered his, uh, uh, his nomination for the gloomy title um, into the race. It is called Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. And uh, my understanding, the working title was Doom, why the living should envy the dead, but his publishers talked him off a ledge a little bit. Uh, Neil Ferguson, welcome back to The Remnant. It's great to be back with you, Jonah. Of course, the title is is a good example of Glaswegian humor, <laughs> but you have to see the jacket of the book to kind of get that. So for those with the visual version, uh, the, the, the jacket depicts uh, a golfer sinking a putt uh, with a raging wildfire behind him. And one of the themes of the book is, is that our attitude towards disaster is sometimes like that, i.e. we are completely oblivious to it. Uh, but at other times, we flip from, uh, i got to focus on this putt, to it's the end of the world. And we are really, <laughs> really very into the end of the world. And my disappointing uh, revelation is that that prophets have predicted about a hundred thousand of zero ends of the world. I mean, we we haven't had the end of the world. We won't for ages. So doom is one of these things about which we are strangely ambivalent. We're fascinated by it, but we can also ignore impending doom with extraordinary myopia. Yeah. So I mean, um, when you say we have, they've been wrong a hundred thousand times. What I hear is, so we're due. But, um, uh, <laughs> but no, um, no, we, we just, we, no matter how feckless we are, it's really quite hard to, to get rid of a species, uh, like Homo sapiens. We can get rid of a lot of us. I mean, the Black Death probably took out about a third, but we came back from that. And, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm inclined to think that our, our problem is not the end of the world. Our, our problem is just a really much bigger disaster than the one that we're just coming to the end of. And, and we should start thinking a bit more seriously about that and fantasizing a bit less about full-blown apocalypse, though it does make for great science fiction. So, I mean, I, I've been dipping in and out of the book. I, I apologize. My schedule with the startup and everything else, I haven't done it cover to cover, but there's a lot of wonderful stuff in here. And, and before we get to the pandemic, which I know is sort of the fulcrum for a lot of other things, but there's a lot of other things in the book, and I really have to recommend it to readers. If if you're like me and you tend to, your approach to books is you don't have to eat the whole carcass. You can just bite off the best pieces. There are a lot of great pieces to work on on here. Um, Some of my I, favorite readers are vultures, and you should just, <laughs> just come peck. It's, it's designed to be quite peckable, and... I want to make it clear, it's not a book about the pandemic. It has a 
I guess, a few chapters at the end that sort of take us into that. But it's a book about disasters generally of all shapes and sizes, the full menagerie of catastrophe. And and I found it, maybe it's because I'm from Glasgow, but I found it strangely cheering to write. Um, I, I should probably see a shrink about that. But um, Right. So I, 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 when I say the pandemic is the fulcrum, I just mean that's the timely yeah, part about why this book now yeah. kind of thing. Right. And you're, you don't make the pandemic, the pandemic was never going to be the end of the world. And the, the our tendency towards doomsaying is, was one of the problems that was created by or exposed by the pandemic. But on this, on the question, you, you say that, you know, people have always been predicting apoc- apocalypses, apocalypse. I don't know what the plural is. Um, what the end time. So some of it clearly comes from, religion it's in the western tradition and all that kind of stuff but there are a lot of non-western faiths and traditions that have this stuff too the mayans ran out of spools for their calendars everyone thought 2012 was the apocalypse how much of it do you think is explainable by essentially evolutionary psychology that a for a species like ours to succeed it has to worry about the end times and this is one of the byproduct or worry about problems and one of the byproducts of that is you get this kind of obsessiveness and how much of it do you think is actually cultural I don't know. I mean, I think if we if we kind of evolved in a sensible way, we wouldn't waste time thinking about complete annihilation uh, because there's so little that you could do about that. I mean, we should have got much better at, at assessing the risk of earthquakes and wildfires, and we're terrible at that. We really don't have a natural feel for the uh, frequency or, or randomness of, of disasters that actually happen. I, I think it's interesting that nearly all the world religions have a, a pretty apocalyptic uh, end time in view. Christianity certainly does, and Islam largely borrowed that because it, it's clearly box office. I mean, I think the point is that <laughs> it's just inherently a very exciting idea that everything is going to go up with an almighty bang and all kinds of strange creatures, uh, horsemen of the apocalypse, etc., are going to appear. Marx borrows this because the whole point of, of Marxism is that there's going to be a secular equivalent of, of the end time. And I think this is probably not explicable in terms of evolutionary psychology. It's explicable in terms of, of our, our fascination with, uh, with the, the enormous uh, crescendo, the the, the climactic uh, end, and also our tendency to anthropomorphize everything, because we as individuals definitely do have doom. I have, except for Peter Thiel, but the rest of us are like done. <laughs> we're going to die, and um, I think because we understand that death is coming us to us individually, we sort of feel like everybody should get it. And so it'd be nice <laughs> if there was just like cosmic death, and then nobody can feel bad about a premature exit. That I think is what's going on. It's not in every religion. A lot of religions, um, I mean, Buddhism, for example, have a cyclical quality. So you might have a great big um, crash, but you kind of come out of it. Uh, Anyway, I have a chapter that explores this fascination we have with spectacular endings. And I, I think my conclusion is that this is just a very, very entertaining feature and we can't get enough of it, which is why there are so many uh, cataclysmic endings in science fiction. So, but I mean, does Doom only cover cataclysmic endings or, you know, one of the things that fascinates particularly Americans, but I, I think it's pretty popular out there in general, is the genre of, say, 
zombie apocalypse movies, right? Which don't mean total doom per se in the sense of total annihilation, but there is this related fear that the, the veneer of civilization is incredibly fragile and all it will take is one forcing event to strip it away. And then all of a sudden uh, we revert back to hunter gatherer bands fighting in tribal combat. And that, that also, it seems to me is it's part of our lizard brains sort of saying we've got it too good. You know, I mean, does that make sense to you? I think civilization is a veneer and a rather fragile one. And the 20th century was uh, a huge illustration of that point in that highly civilized advanced societies embarked on extraordinary acts of organized and often brutal violence. So when I was first thinking about this book, here's the origin story, which is relevant. I wanted to write a history of the future looking at ways in which we have thought about the future, and in particular, the dystopias that, that really come out of science fiction as a genre. So that was the sort of initial idea before the pandemic came on the scene. And I was having a bit of trouble selling this to my, my publisher, I have to admit. But I was very, very obsessively reading science fiction in 2019, because I'd, I'd come to the conclusion that if I just sort of stuck to my history beat, I'd, I'd understand a lot about uh, our present predicament, but I'd probably keep missing the technological discontinuities that science fiction writers are good at imagining. I mean, mm -hmm. they overimagine them, so they always imagine more than, than we actually get. Still, it seemed like a refreshing mental break to go read science fiction manically for a year. And as I was doing that, I was thinking, well, this is interesting, because really from about Mary Shelley all the way down to the present, to the Chinese writer Liu Cixin, whose three-body problem I got very interested in, we have, uh, we have a kind of 200-year experiment uh, in which a whole bunch of pretty smart people, not all of them smart, but by and large pretty smart people, think about ways in which the world can go off the rails. Because mm -hmm. obviously not many books are utopian. Uh, that is not box office. Uh, they're nearly all various horrific scenarios. And you mentioned one genre, which is the veneer of civilization is stripped away and we're all in Mad Max. Uh, but there are a whole bunch of others. There's the post-plague version, there's the mm -hmm. post-flood version, you name it. There are all kinds of ways in which the world plunges into a catastrophic state. doesn't annihilate everybody, because that really wouldn't be terribly interesting after the Big Bang, but it, it leaves things in a pretty parlous state. And that's, that's the that's the drama. And what also struck me as I was doing all that reading was that there were there were sort of natural disaster ways uh, to this, but but broadly we prefer man-made disastrous ways to this. We we prefer that we've waged a nuclear war or that we've right. experimented with genetic engineering just once too often or whatever it is. So there's always a kind of sense that um, that the disaster has been brought upon mankind by itself. At any event, that was what, what I was obsessing about in 2019. And maybe because of that, as soon as I got the email from a doctor friend saying there's some weird new virus in Wuhan, China, I'm like, yes, this is the <laughs> one. Here we go. Now I, now I think I might be able to get my publisher to pay attention. So yeah, that, that's how it came about. But you're right, we are absolutely fascinated with the idea of really awful, uh, disastrous scenarios that will test uh, us soft and uh, and uh, feeble, late, uh, you know, early twenty first century people to see what we're made of, and that that's part of the appeal. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the point about science fiction is a great one. And I, I, I often make this point that one of the great, truly wonderful things about science fiction is that the best of it, what it does is it changes the technology, it changes the setting, distant planets, distant future, whatever. But the one constant is human nature. And you actually get to, re by putting human nature in different settings, you actually reveal the constancy. You know, one of the core convictions of conservatism is that human nature has no history and that we are the same barbarians in every generation. And science fiction exposes that in ways that a lot of other genres don't because it takes it as the centerpiece of the whole thing. But so, of course, does reading Shakespeare because we can understand right. the plots. I mean, if, if there had been these huge changes in, in human nature, Shakespeare would be incomprehensible to us, but actually it's, it's highly comprehensible. And that's important because I think what I was striving for in writing this book was to capture that which is a permanent feature of the human condition and, and that which is different because of technology. And, you know, there's a lot of things that have been changed by science and technology. And that's why it's a little challenging to think about the present and the future just using history. I mean, you'll get a mm -hmm. lot right, but you'll probably miss you'll probably miss those things that have been altered by the technological changes. And I felt when I was reading Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, which was written in the 90s, that here was somebody who'd fully grasped what the internet would do, mm -hmm. that it would create a parallel world in which we'd actually be having more fun as our avatars. Uh, and that that world really came uh, of age last year because so many people were forced to have their fun exclusively on the, the internet. Now, I don't, I don't think that's really there in the past anywhere. There's something very new about that. Yeah, so, I mean, um, I, I want to talk about pandemic stuff, but, I find, but first of all, I feel like you're going to be asked by a lot of people to talk about pandemic stuff. And there's so much other stuff that's interesting to me that I want to get to. So, you know, one of the things I was fascinated by at the beginning of the pandemic was um, what things, what habits, institutions, assumptions, uh, you know, uh, tropes, whatever you want to call it, are going to live long past the pandemic. And I mean, you have a, some great stuff in here about um, previous pandemics, which were much worse, <laughs> you know, I mean, the yeah. pandemics and epidemics, which were just much, much worse than this thing. But if you had to guess, I mean, so we know like the word quarantine comes out of, you know, it's the 40 days and you talk about that in there. And um, there are all sorts of things that came out of the influenza change behaviors. But if you had to guess doing sort of a futurology, you know, in, in 10 years, what kind of things do you think people will say, you know where that started? Hmm. That started with the, you know, with the COVID pandemic, you know, what, what do you think has, has cultural stickiness? The answer that at this point seems most plausible is that we are, at least some of us, let us say, those people who are relatively highly educated and have relatively skilled occupations will be doing a lot more of, uh, of their work from home. Mm -hmm. Nick Bloom at Stanford has been doing some great research on this, and he was working on this before, showing that there really was a huge potential for people to work from home. Um, and that that's obviously been forced to happen much faster. And I don't think we will revert to the hypermobility that characterized the, the later stages of the, the period before the pandemic, when 
there was just a crazy amount of, of business and non-business travel. I, I find it hard to believe that we'll go back to that readily when uh, technologies like the ones we're using right now work so well for really most purposes. Other things won't, I think, be sticky. I think we'll be back to handshakes and hugs alarmingly quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, are you alarmed because I... your misanthropy doesn't want them to come back, or oh, <laughs> what, yeah, totally. what makes I it alarming? I hate hugs. I hate <laughs> that whole hug. Th- I mean, we, I, west of Scotland is not a place where you hug unless you have a knife in your hand and they're about to finish <laughs> your antagonist off. No, I, I hoped. I had a brief moment of hoping that that we were done with all those sweaty handshakes and and particularly with the Bill Clinton hug, but I don't. don't think so. I think we, we'll snap back a lot. But the key point is that if you look at the really bad plagues, like the Black Death in the 1340s, which kept happening right the mm-hmm. way through to the 1660s in the UK and longer elsewhere, what's really impressive is that in the face of cataclysmic levels of death, where like 30 or 40% of the population are wiped out, within a short period of time after the infection uh, abates, people go back to normal. And it sort of becomes background noise. That That's a an interesting feature in Shakespeare. Plague is mentioned, but it's never like the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the background. So I think in, in the case of this relatively medium-sized disaster, uh, it might be, in, in terms of public health and behavior, it might be a bit like, uh, it might be a bit like the 1957, 58 uh, Asian uh, flu, after which it very quickly receded uh, almost into the realm of amnesia, not many people remember that event. But the difference is that we did stuff that you couldn't have done before. Because in 1957, you couldn't say, everybody stay home, work from home. No, that wasn't an option. You, most people could not possibly have worked from home in the 1950s. And so we had this extraordinary option that we hadn't had before to say to people, you, can, you must stay at home and do stuff there. And the internet allowed us to do that. And, then, and that had a whole cascade of consequences. The full scale of which and, and the quality of which we don't quite understand. But for sure, we've done some pretty disastrous things. And, and the, the, the kind of aftermath of those things, the aftermath of shutting the California public schools for a year, that'll be with us for a long time. And it'll be, it'll be tough to do the cost-benefit analysis. But I, I think in that sense, we'll kind of, the masks will soon be in your desk drawer and, and then buried underneath whatever you put in the desk drawer next. The, the, the habits of 2020 will not be a feature of, of 2022 unless we get some new variant that eludes the, the vaccine, unless we get a, another wave in the winter, which seems less and less likely looking at the way the vaccines are working. So that's kind of how I think about it. And the analogy that I found quite helpful was AIDS, uh, HIV AIDS, because when that virus first began to be understood and people realized there was a sexually transmitted disease and there was no vaccine. And for ages, there was really no, nothing resembling a, a, an effective therapy. You'd have thought that everybody would have adopted condoms permanently for you know, extramarital sex. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen. And I'm, I'm very struck by the fact that unsafe sex just carried on uh, Particularly during the period when there was no, there were no um, antiretrovirals, there were really no ways of treating uh, AIDS if it developed. And I think we're kind of the same about 
if you think of this as being to social life, what HIV was to sex, we do, we, you know, we sort of sometimes wear the masks, like some people sometimes wore condoms, but it's that kind of imperfect adaptation that I'm struck by. We, we don't rad- radically alter our behavior, even when we know there's a quite significant new risk. And uh, at the same time, we're kind of creatures of, of the herd. Um, so Californians c- will continue wearing masks long after they're completely redundant as badges to show that they're not conservatives. And that, that sort of thing is just, it tells you just how strange we are as a species. We really don't behave in very rational ways at all. So I think the thing that will stick will be the snow crash thing where we, people are spending half their lives online. I, I look at my nine-year-old son, uh, anecdote from the, the family album, uh, much nagging went on. Can we please go back to California? I want to see my friends. I want to see my friends. I'm sick of distance learning. So back we come. And uh, within a week, there's a request for a a Zoom play date. I'm like, no, wait, (laughs) we came back. So you didn't have to do that. Oh, no, it's really cool because we can do Roblox and Zoom. (laughs) The nine-year-olds are the future. We are kind of, we're sort of in the, the, the... final phase of our contributions to, to civilization's advance. But, but if Thomas is any guide, I think that kids are going to be, they're just going to be in the snow crash world where virtual entertainment, particularly gaming, just takes over. And I think that was happening, but to say something that many people have said, we had sort of 10 years worth of history in 10 months in 2020. That will stick. um, I was reading the chapter on science and magic, which is one of these things I'm kind of fascinated with and um and you know one of your core critiques is that basically everybody screwed up at least in the american context and there's this what you might call a a pas de deux of dysfunction between donald trump and the mainstream media where because everyone had to have the the, donald trump behaved badly i think you you agree with that Mm -hmm. um and he was uh he didn't take the pandemic seriously and he didn't let and he didn't set a tone to let other people's take it as seriously as they should have. But at the same time, the mainstream media and the democratic party, they went to their priors and basically deduced if Trump is for it, it must be bad. And sometimes like the China ban, that was a good idea. I mean, you argue that it was too late, but it was still a better idea than not having a China ban. Yes. And so you have this, this, catalytic effect where one side's errors bounce off the other, get magnified and worse. So in the beginning, telling people to avoid China was racist because if Trump is for it, it must be because he's, you know, it must be because of his racism, blah, 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 blah. I agree with all that. You're free to respond or expand on that as you like. But the more troubling part is, and as you mentioned, as you write in the book is, you know, the CDC did dumb things and public health officials did dumb things. And it seems to me that one of the long tails of the pandemic is a much more prevalent view that scientists and science aren't to be trusted in part because a lot of the scientists and public health officials betrayed their trusts. I mean, I think what they did about saying it's okay to protest black lives matter stuff was outrageous and grotesque, but you now have what's fascinating to me is I don't know if you saw this, Brookline, Massachusetts, which mm-hmm, mm-hmm. per capita is the second most educated municipality in America. 
It's got all your former Harvard friends living there and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I couldn't afford to live there when I was at Harvard. That was for the real swanky econ professors. <laughs> they rejected the CDC's guidance and passed uh, another 45 or 60 days of mandatory mask wearing outside. Um, and there's something so perverse about how elites, liberal elites love to heap massive scorn on quote unquote, anti-science rednecks, essentially or flyover yeah. people and because, but their anti-science science is, I don't want to wear masks. Masks are stupid. I don't want to get the vaccine. And I got problems with all that. That's fine. But then there's this anti-science thing among elites, progressive elites, essentially that says, I don't care if it's safe now. I'm still not going to take off my mask. And that seems to me we'll have a, I mean, you may be right. I'm, not entirely sold that the everyone's going to want to stay on Zoom because there's a huge Zoom backlash among the people I know anecdotally. But um, it seems to me that generalized distrust, which we'd seen of other experts and other elites prior to the pandemic, got intensified in an, in an incredible mm. way. I think the Zoom thing will be forced on us uh, by businesses. Uh, and, th and that's why there'll be much more working from home. It's much economically preferable to flying everybody around the world and putting them in hotels and all that nonsense. So I think that that's not like we're going to be, hey, let's stick with Zoom, not like the nine-year-olds. We're, we're going to be made to do Zoom. Uh, that, that, I think, is what's going to drive it. But coming to this broader question, in 1957, Americans were rather proud of the fact that the U.S. rocked at vaccines. And one of my favorite characters in the book is, is Morris Hillman, who was the kind of king of vaccine invention, this Montana-born scientist who just, he just kind of invented vaccines the way you and I make coffees. He was brilliant at it. And there was no politicization of the issue worth talking about. No, nobody was making uh, a significant objection to mass vaccination in the face of a new and pretty deadly influenza virus that, unlike SARS-CoV-2, was killing a lot of young people, lots of excess mortality amongst teenagers in 57, 58. So I'm struck by the fact that we have got to the point where everything is a partisan issue. Previously, these issues had been in the domain of public health that did not really attract so much partisan conflict. So that's the first point that's striking to me. The second thing I'm struck by is that there's a lot of extraordinary work being done at, in, in vast volumes by scientists in multiple disciplines to try to figure this thing out. Mm -hmm. And part of what you'll notice in the later part of the book is that I'm drinking from this fire hose trying to turn it into kind of instant, intelligible history. What you understand when you read the raw material that's coming out of all the different countries, including China, is that there's no such thing as the science. This is an, mm -hmm. a stupid phrase uh, that nobody should use because there are a whole range of different sciences and it's not clear that the epidemiologists and the virologists agreed. And there are lots and lots of wrong papers and lots and lots of, uh, uh, of quite rapid refutations of hypotheses. Remember the weather hypothesis, just as an right. example. And I was kind of slightly obsessed with the way this, watching this happen in real time recognizing that there was certainly no settled science uh, on, on masks. There was pretty quickly settled science on outdoor spread. Now, this is one mm -hmm. of the interesting things. You could, and I'm, I'm not claiming anything other than a historian's ability to read 
documents and make sense of them. But you could tell from the research that came out early on from China and also from parts of Europe that were hit early that there was no, virtually no outdoor spread happening. And you could tell from the research that people were doing on, on super spreader events and individuals that, that this happened in specific kinds of indoor location, like restaurants and karaoke bars and cruise ships and prisons and blah, blah, blah. So when the Californian authorities and others said, you're not only confined to your house, all of you, but you can't go to public parks and beaches, we entered a new realm of lunacy because there was just no basis for that at all that I could see at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think this, this takes us to a kind of really important point in the book, which doesn't have a specifically COVID piece to it. It's a general point about disasters. In the midst of all the chaos, with all these different uh, research uh, findings, duking it out to see what exactly we were dealing with, it was decided by about April that it was all Donald Trump's fault. And that was, as you said, not the immediate uh, take, because in January, the liberal media were saying that Trump was overreacting. But by April, it was all his fault. Uh, Jim Fallows wrote a piece for The Atlantic saying, being president is like flying my light aircraft. And if something goes wrong, it's pilot error. If you think being the president of the United States is like flying a light aircraft, <laughs> you probably shouldn't be allowed to fly a light aircraft because you have lost your mind. It's nothing like that. I don't think for a minute that Trump was sitting there forming judgments. He was doing what presidents in a situation like that do. He was sitting in rooms full of people who were yelling at one another. There were the Cudlow people saying, we can't do anything to slow down the economy. We've got an election coming up and we're running on the freaking economy. And then there was people who got it, like Matt Pottinger, saying, no, 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 no. This is really, really bad. And we need to do stuff. And, and the decision-making process was anything uh, but flying a light aircraft. It was mm -hmm. a battle between multiple agencies. Now, in a, an emergency, there's usually a part of the government whose job it is. And in this case, you mentioned it already, Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, and Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. There are people with this job. There's even a Deputy Secretary for Preparedness, Robert uh, Cadillac. And so the question is, why did they totally fail? Mm -hmm. it's, that's the question we need to ask. Because the idea that if Joe Biden had magically been president a year early, none of this would have happened, is, is it's even my nine-year-old would think that was a ridiculous claim. And yet it's, it's made with a straight face on a regular basis. We must recognize that when a disaster like this happens, the point of failure is probably not at the top any more than George W. Bush was personally responsible for poor regulation of financial institutions in the run-up to 2008. I mean, it was on his watch. But are you telling me that Bush was sitting there reading the Basel Accords and bank capital adequacy and saying, hmm, Right. That looks about right. That's not how it works. And, you know, Jim Fallows knows, he must know that's not how it works. Government's an incredibly complex bureaucratic machine. There's a thing called the administrative state. And the bits of the administrative state whose job was pandemic preparedness failed. And they did not fail everywhere in the world. They sure didn't fail in Taiwan. They didn't fail in South Korea. They re really did pretty well in a bunch of other Asian and Australasian countries. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is why was the, the point of failure there? 
And this brings me to one of my favorite episodes in the book, which is the 1986 Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. For me, the, the epiphany in writing this book was when a friend, uh, one of my former students, Manny Rincon Cruz, who now works with me here at Hoover, said, you need to read Richard Feynman's account of the Challenger disaster. If you're going to write a general book about disasters, this is the book to read. I never really thought too much about it because in the end it was spectacular, but only the crew died and that wasn't a large crew, what, seven people. But anyway, I read the book. And Feynman's story, you may know this already, stop me if everybody knows this, but Feynman's story is initially there was an attempt to say it was Reagan's fault. Right. Yeah, they rushed the launch. Because he wanted to announce something in a speech, right? The story was they rushed the launch because they wanted to put it in the State of the Union. And this was wrong. There never had been any likelihood that, Reagan was going to refer to it in the speech. What had happened was that the engineers at NASA and uh, the the company that made the the rocket launchers knew there was a 1%, a 1 in 100 chance that the thing would blow up and that it was going to blow up because they were going to get to 100 launches sooner or later. And the NASA mid-level guys were like, oh, we can't tell them that. So it became 1 in 100,000. And Feynman, he found this point mm-hmm. of error. This, this was the, the point of failure in the, the challenger story. And I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, that's actually how government works. That there is somebody in the middle tier who's, you know, knows that actually we have a problem if there's a coronavirus pandemic. I think Cadillac knew. I think he knew that we had a problem. On paper, we were prepared. We had 36-page pandemic preparedness plans. PowerPoint decks about pandemics up the wazoo. I mean, so many agencies had pandemic preparedness plans that you almost wonder if anybody was in fact in charge. But at any event, and George W. Bush, remember he read there. the Barry book and he was like, "We got to do something. We got to plan for this." Right? He took he took some initiative back then, and off they went and planned and planned yeah. and planned. And there were any number of plans. Uh, this was something that uh, Judge Glock actually looked at them all, and I I reference his brilliant piece in which he says, "Here are all the pandemic preparedness plans." And on paper, we were about the best prepared country in the world. The interesting thing is that it all failed. And, and I think if we, leave, if we leave the cinema thinking at the end of the movie, uh, if only someone else had been president, none of this would have happened. We are totally deluding ourselves. And the next disaster, which will take some other different form, will expose exactly the same problem in another part of the government. Okay, so can I push back on this just a little bit? I mean, I, I, sure. I take your general point, and I think it's right. It, more important to look at the systemic failure than, you know, the political, easy political scapegoats. And I think you are right about that point. That said, can't you make the argument that if you had Joe Biden or some other president who didn't so clearly not want to acknowledge the reality of the problem, it's going to go away. We're at five. We don't want to let the cruise ship people off because that'll make our numbers go up to 12 or whatever it was. Forget talking about shining lights in our innards and all these kinds of things. It'll go away by spring. Um, if you had and someone who wasn't going around tweeting things like liberate Michigan and turning this more into a culture war issue than it needed to be, I'm not saying nothing would have happened because I think you're right. That's a, that's, that's a dumb contrafactual. But Maybe we would have had fewer than, what's the number now? 475,000 people dead? We could have had 200,000. Probably 550 at this point, but on Trump's watch, it was probably slightly south of that. I think that this is a very tempting line of argument. And in the book, I showed that that he made 
almost too many mistakes to count. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm skeptical of the notion that a different president would have achieved significantly lower excess mortality. And interestingly, so is Ron Klain, who, who observed in, in, this is Joe Biden's chief of staff, who observed in a 2019 debate that if the swine flu of 2009 had been as lethal as COVID, they would have had a disaster on their hands. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, it was just sheer luck that that wasn't a very deadly virus because it infected a, an awful lot of people. Well, let's think about, and this was one of the more, this is one of the things I wrote that I, I thought would get me a lot of hate. The, the opioid epidemic killed as many people over the eight years of Barack Obama's presidency as, as COVID did in the last year of Trump's presidency. Each year, it killed more people. It was an American problem because it wasn't happening everywhere else. Mm -hmm. I don't remember reading the piece by Jim Fallows that said it was all Obama's fault because Obama very cleverly kept his distance from a problem about which he felt he could do nothing or perhaps he had no incentive to do something. Trump's great mistake, the really big mistake, was just to put himself front and center of the response uh, because if he'd, if he'd been wise, he would have left it all to Pence and, and kept out of what he manifestly didn't understand. We don't know, and uh, we can't run the counterfactual with a different president. Democrats will swear uh, until the end of time that it would all have been better with Hillary Clinton uh, or Joe Biden in the White House. But I think it doesn't matter who's president, CDC still screws up testing. And that's what mm -hmm. you had to get right if you had any hope of preventing a surge of, of, of mortality. If you ramped up testing in January, February, then you had a shot at containing it. If you did contact tracing at that point, which again they did in Taiwan, you had a shot at containing this. And if you had some competent way of isolating infected people and keeping them away from vulnerable people, again, excess mortality would have stayed down. But we didn't do any of that. I, mm. I honestly think the reasons we didn't do those things have really quite little to do with presidential decision-making. I mean, we have this tendency to exaggerate the importance of the man at the top. That's the Tolstoy point in War and Peace. And I'm inclined to think that when you look at a disaster, it doesn't really matter what kind of disaster it is, it's, it's, it's rarely the man at the top who's really making the decisive difference. And that's a recurrent theme of the book. Not to defend Trump. I thought he did a terrible job. Bolsonaro, terrible. Boris Johnson, pretty bad. Narendra Modi, pretty terrible. But that's, I don't think, really the explanation for excess mortality. Otherwise, there would be much lower excess mortality in countries that didn't have populist presidents. But Belgium had worse excess mortality mm. than the UK and the US. Uh, so did Spain. Peru, terrible. No populist president to blame in those, in those countries. So that, that seems to me an important argument. No, I, I definitely agree with you. It's an important argument. And I just wanted to clarify the point because there are going to be people who are going to hear this and say, oh, you're letting Trump off the hook. You're not I'm doing definitely that. Not. If you read the book, yeah, I no, really I am quite mean about him. <laughs> but I think we have to be honest with ourselves and say that's probably not really what went wrong last year. Right. Not so that's, that's sort of my point about the, 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 the collective action problem that we had, a, you know, not just with the media coverage, but generally speaking, there's just dysfunction. And so it's easy. A part of your argument is very much a Mansur Olson, Jonathan Rauch sclerosis of the administrative state, bureaucracies 
lose their way. You know, I mean, I, I kept saying, you know, um, what was his guy? What was his name? Oh, um, Leslie, the guy who built the Pentagon and did the atomic bomb project, the Manhattan project. Um, his name is Leslie something. He's the general who built the Pentagon in like 14 months. Leslie Grove. Was that it? Leslie Grove. Yes. Okay. That sounds plausible. It would have been great if we had somebody like if, if maybe this Cadillac guy is that guy. And if Trump had just simply said, this guy knows what's going on, he's in charge and just gotten out of the way. It's conceivable to me that we wouldn't have had as much excess mortality, but we still have, we'd still have sufficient amount that we need to look at the systemic failure part, which is part of your point. What is your explanation for the systemic failure? Is it just the sclerosis that comes from large bureaucratic systems where the concentrated benefit problem, you know, causes people to get tunnel vision? I mean, what, what, what is it? I, I had a crack at this back when, uh, when I wrote The Great Degeneration, I think it's not just that all bureaucracies tend towards sclerosis. I think there's a particular way of thinking about risk and uncertainty that leads to fake preparedness. That mm -hmm. is to say, uh, if there are too many people in the building with law degrees, <laughs> then we sit down and we start drawing up very, very long and detailed documents that seek to cover every eventuality and therefore our asses. And that is really the, the law school mentality. And that explains 36-page pandemic preparedness plans, which are notable for their length and, and the density of the prose, but also notable for the fact that they don't work. Mm -hmm. So I think the United States has a peculiar problem, which is that, that we like to think with great precision about particular scenarios that we've decided are problematic. And we, 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 we zero in on those, and then we try to think of all the different ways in which we can cover our assets. But the problem is we're then really well prepared for the wrong thing. Rather than being, and here I, I think it's important that there are counterexamples, very generally paranoid, because there are lots of bad things that can happen, but quick on the draw when they start to happen. And that's what Taiwan has, and South Korea has, and I think Israel has. If you live right next door to people who wish you very ill indeed, you have a mentality which is, we don't know how they're going to come at us. Could be cyber, could be an invasion, could be biological warfare. Let's just be ready. And the Taiwanese response was spectacularly quick, as quick as ours was lumbering and, and slow. So I, I think there is something there that we need to, to look at quite closely. It seems to characterize most... US federal agencies, that they are drawn towards the production of very lengthy documents and PowerPoint decks, but that when the crisis comes, it all falls apart. Think of the financial crisis. There were so many documents about bank capital adequacy. There was regulation here and there. It's true that there was less regulation than there had been in the 1970s, but the thing was still pretty highly regulated. And I remember plowing through the ever longer Basel Accords just none of it worked. None of it worked when the rubber hit the road. So I think that's, that's what I'm interested in. And we know that it, it was different in the 1950s because the institutions were newer, relatively smaller, and there was that mentality that the war had, I think, mm -hmm. created that Eisenhower personified, that, you know, there are, there are uh, that things go wrong, they go wrong fast, and you better be, you better be ready for that. And we've, we've, we've clearly, in our in our government lost that kind of nimbleness. Um, so I mean, 
I was once a television producer and we did an interview. I was the producer. I wasn't the interviewer, but we did an interview with um, John Keegan, who I'm sure you're familiar with, the military historian. John, John and I used to work together, anecdote time, uh, at the Daily Telegraph many years ago when he was defense correspondent, right. which was a, a, a sinecure, really, that Max Hastings gave him. It wasn't a sinecure. He, he worked. But, but it was really because Max loved John. And, and I still have this vivid uh, image of John limping in in his immaculate <laughs> pinstripe suit, uh, smoking a cigar at all hours of the day. And what a wonderful military historian he was. It was, just one, it was great for us young leader writers to have John around to ping ideas off. Yeah, he, um, the face of battle, you know, I mean, it's, I'm not a huge military history buff. I mean, I like it more than a lot of people, but not as much as a lot of people do. And that's just uh, an amazingly compelling and impressive synthesis of an amazing amount of research. I always remember him referring to some historian as the finest compiler of Hunnish data in world history or something <laughs> like that. I just, the phrase Hunnish data, I just think is fantastic. But he, um, <laughs> I like uh, Hunnish data. Um, me, he, he had in mind. He had this argument about the Plains Indian, I guess maybe the, uh, the Apache, but, um, as the deadly, the single deadliest warrior in all of human history. And the argument wasn't that they were necessarily braver than the SS who are also pretty high ranking and, you know, various others. It was the convergence of three historical things. It was the introduction of the horse into the, into North America. Um, the culture of these Indians um, and the Remington rifle. And you put those three things together and the, it's amazing. You go back and you look at you like the cost per brave killed to the U S treasury was just enormous because they were so lethal. They were so mobile and, um, and they were so well-trained and rugged and brave and all that kind of thing. And I always think about that when I think about how, in historical moments, you have to think about confluences of different things coming together and not look at things in their isolation. And this is something that you've written a lot about, you know, the, um, the role of social media in all of this. And in, in this book, you also write about how pandemics always unleash a certain tide of crankiness, of crank pseudoscience and superstition and conspiracy theory. There's something about us when something terrible happens, we have to imagine that either we've offended the gods or someone else is deliberately doing this to us. And the fact that social media exists weaponized that and accelerated it in sort of fascinating ways. I'm just kind of curious, can you make that case? And I know you are, you're much tougher on social, on the, the big platforms than, than I am. You're much tougher about 2.30 than I necessarily would be. Um, if you were kind of plan for the next catastrophe, what, how would you address the issue of how social media deals with these things or makes these things worse? Well, Jenny, it's certainly true that in a disaster, uh, at any time in history, wild ideas circulate. Uh, it was true in the time of Thucydides. Uh, it's true in the 1340s. You don't need the internet for that. Uh, and indeed, I think it's the case that almost all the big plagues are accompanied by plagues of the mind. Uh, Disasters have never been good for the Jews. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> there's that. Uh, the 1340s are worth revisiting, A, for the, the flagellant orders, and B, for the, the pogrom-like atta pogrom attacks on, on Jewish communities in multiple European cities. 
there's no doubt that when we are confronted with a sudden spike in mortality, uh, it doesn't bring out the best in us, and certainly not the most reasoned thinking. And despite the onward march of science, uh, we've seen that in our own time. The internet, uh, a problem that I've been grappling with for a while, the last book, The Square and the Tower said, we have a terrible problem. We've created uh, these platforms that are now engines for the dissemination of fake news and extreme views, and we have absolutely no clue what to do about it, and we really should do something about it, and we proceeded not to do anything about it. And sure enough, uh, the, the existing networks of conspiracy theory were perfectly positioned to take advantage of, of the, the mood of anxiety that the pandemic generated and, and to really run riot with mad ideas. And I talk about this in the book. Actually, there were two chapters that I cut from the book that went into this part of the argument in much more detail, showing that our, our, our real problem in formulating a coherent response was just the mad stuff that was circulating about the, the virus, about potential remedies, and of course, about the vaccines. And I think we, we were very foolish not to address these problems. The 2016 election had revealed all kinds of things. I think we got better at dealing with the outside interference problem, but that was never the big problem in mm -hmm. my view. The big problem in my view was that the platforms uh, don't really pay any penalty for carrying damaging, harmful information. And at the same time, they can censor at will, and there's just no accountability. You can't, you can't sue these companies successfully. And that's something we should have fixed. And I think the Republican Party was very, very, very foolish to leave it until much too late in the day to think about Section 230. We don't need to go right down that, that wormhole, mm -hmm. but I think leaving the status quo with Zuckerberg and, and, and Bezos and the others with massive power over the public sphere and just no accountability, that's something we've paid dearly for. The way that Facebook groups promoted uh, nutty ideas, uh, and, and they knew that they had super spreaders in those groups spreading all kinds of nonsense. They knew it, and they didn't do anything about it uh, because, in the end, the bu the business model is is eyeballs uh, glued to screens. It's a clickbait model. So, I think that's a really important reason why the United States struggled to have a coherent response. The public health communication sucked. Confidence, I think, went out the window when they flipped on masks. From you don't need them to you definitely need them. But really, even if they'd done a better job of messaging, there would have been this massive amount of deeply, deeply misleading information that attracted educated as well as poorly educated people in rather, in rather shocking numbers. So I think, as in previous plagues, we, we had the plague of the mind as well. It made it very difficult to get a rational response to, to the crisis. And I, I look back on the summer of 2020 and think there were lots of medieval uh, features there. It was a great act of expiation uh, when you think about it, those, those protests. They were enormous in scale. I can't imagine they would ever have been so large in the absence of a, of a pandemic and all the anxiety that the, the lockdowns had generated. And often they took this quasi-religious form on, you know, the, the white protesters washing the feet of, of black pastors in one case. Uh, the prayers for forgiveness being offered up, all of that just seemed to me straight out of Norman Cohn's pursuit of the millennium. It wasn't quite the flagellant orders, but it definitely reminded me of that. Why don't you 
for listeners, because you referenced the flagellant orders and just explain what they were, um, because some people might take away that they were um, suffering from excess gas, and that's not what you're referring to. <laughs> that's the flagellant order. It's a completely different order. Flagellant, <laughs> uh, self, uh, the, the people who wandered through the streets of, of medieval towns in the 1340s whipping themselves, they were men. Mm-hmm. Uh, who formed these these brotherhoods, uh, uh, and and they performed ritual uh, self uh, floggings, uh, often uh, drawing blood uh, in the process. And and these these orders proliferated throughout Europe at the time of the Black Death. Remember, the Black Death is this cataclysmic event that's killing thirty or forty percent in some cases it just basically wipes out an entire town and, and killing them in this badly atmosphere, it's a bad way to go too right i mean it's, it, it, it's an extremely unpleasant yeah. way to die uh bubonic plague and of course no one had any understanding and uh, it took centuries for us to understand how it spread and the fleas the rats nobody understood it so in that atmosphere there are these extraordinary scenes in in towns all over Europe of of men whipping themselves and, and falling prostrate uh, uh, in the posture of, of crucifixion. There's a whole elaborate ritual there. And, and what's happening is an attempt at expiation for our sins. We're flogging ourselves to ward off further divine wrath. That's what's going on. And I, I'm fascinated by these moments of conjunction between disaster and, um, and, and, and mass uh, expressions of whether it's expiation or retribution uh the the great 1918-19 uh pandemic again a much worse pandemic than ours probably 40 times worse in terms of the proportion of the world's population killed coincides with uh that wave of bolshevism sweeping out from russia all around the world and and in that atmosphere it's it's actually retribution rather than flagellation that happens so i'm i'm very struck by the way that disasters because they they do deeply traumatize us as societies produce a whole host of of pandemics or or plagues of the mind including not necessarily mass movements i think we'll realize we're beginning to realize already the great toll in terms of mental health mm-hmm. that 2020 caused so it's, it, it's funny, as you talk and also when I was, I was reading the early chapters um, about the flagellant orders and the expiation and retribution and whatnot, I keep thinking about climate change, which in some ways is a slow-moving doomsday scenario, right? And, and one of the advantages of it, for want of a better term, to make it sticky in people's heads is it's so far out that it it... It can be a constant in our lives, and it, you know it's funny. So, Elon Musk um, is doing something. I'm not a huge Elon Musk fan, but I, I, I think he's a very impressive guy, and history will remember him as an impressive guy. But he's actually doing something that a lot of people who are climate, you know, uh, doomsdayers. Uh, have been dreaming of. He's actually making electric cars a real plausible reality for people. And one gets the sense that that's one of the reasons why they really hate him is that when an electric car was something that high net worth people could use to virtue signal 
about how they were, quote unquote, making sacrifices by driving this $100,000 car. That was wonderful. But the second you actually make this thing a non-Veblen good, a non-status-seeking thing, it ruins the expiation kind of uh, frisson that you get from it. And it kind of reminds me when natural gas started to supplant coal. No one on the environmental left wanted to celebrate this as a fantastic news, even though it was a net huge boon, if you believe in the climate stuff that they say, because, precisely because it was actually solving the problem. And there's something religious in this that they want the problem more than they want solutions, which is why they won't do nuclear, for example. Well, millenarian movements have existed really uh, throughout history. People who predict uh, with great confidence the end of the world. And it's, it's 10 years away, Jonah, because it was two years ago that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that, that we only have 12 years left. Right. Uh, the Greta Thunberg phenomenon is part of this. Uh, she is, in fact, a quintessentially religious figure, the child saint, mm -hmm. uh, pro prophesying the end time. I think the thing that is worrying here is yeah there's there's partly a kind of reluctance to talk seriously about solutions because the end of the world has this gratifying satisfying quality to it especially if you can blame it uh, on other people but but this extends beyond criticizing elon I'm, i've known elon for many years i've known him since before he became uh the godlike figure uh he's become for some and the Trump substitute that he's become for, for others. And he's a brilliant, extraordinary individual uh, who's, who's changing the world more than I think most of us will ever come remotely close to doing. But of course, if, if Elon sells Teslas to the Chinese, uh, which I think they're about to stop him doing, but if he were to sell uh, Teslas so successfully to the Chinese that they all drove Teslas, it wouldn't actually solve the problem because if they're charging the Teslas with electricity sure. generated by burning coal, <laughs> I know. we're nowhere further on. And I find maddening the reluctance of people who care about this issue, and I certainly take it seriously, to talk honestly about the fact that 48% of the increase in CO2 emissions since the Paris Accord are due to China. Right. And the other 20-odd percent is India and the rest of the Middle East, and the West's reducing its emissions. And, and we, we could reduce them by even more drastic amounts than we're currently pledging to do. It won't make any difference at all if the Chinese carry on in the way that they have been doing, uh, which is to say one thing uh, and quietly buy off a part of the green lobby uh, uh, in various ways, but do another. Uh, so I, I'm frustrated by this issue. I talk about it in the in the book because I think it's the latest example of our tendency to a be fascinated by doom. So the end of the world is nigh. That religious mood that Greta Thunberg likes to get into, and at the same time, the refusal to take practical steps that might actually address the problem. And finally, the myopia that this induces. Because if all you're doing is having conferences on climate change and telling people this is the one great threat to humanity, you know we're going to get slapped in the face by something else long before sure. we've uh, got to the worst case scenario that the International Pan Panel on Climate Change has, has predicted. I mean, history just doesn't ever give you the disaster that you set your heart on. That, that, that much I'm pretty sure about. And there are way faster acting uh, forms of disaster that we should be worrying more about. But as long as we enshrine 
claim it as the sacred, all-important apocalyptic uh, scenario, we're just going to miss the the real disasters that probably happen much sooner and much faster. Yeah, I mean, but that's what what fascinates me about it is the is the way it maps onto our brains along religious lines more than as a problem to be solved. You know, if if you if you as Joe Biden has said that climate change is not only a um uh an existential threat, he says it's an it's an extinction level threat. And yet in his address to Congress, he says, when I look at climate change, I see jobs. That's not what a serious person says about, you know, know, an extinction level threat. And, um, and it's this, the, you know, Epicurious big food website. Uh, they just announced that they're no longer to offer beef recipes of any kind. And I understand the logic about, you know, cows, methane farts, whatever, but at the end of the day, the appeal of this stuff is a mix of virtue signaling and self-denial rather than actual problem solving. And if you were actually, if you actually took all of the stuff that they say seriously, and I believe climate change is a real problem and something that we should deal with. I just want to solve the problem. Um, you would be building incredibly safe pebble nuclear reactors. You would be doing all sorts of real things that take the problem seriously, but that's not the approach. Instead, it's this idea that we must it, it, you know, it's like, it's like fish on Friday. You know, it's like, we must deny ourselves something, um, to prove our concern about this rather than actually demonstrating it by trying to fix the problem. And I think that's one of the, I mean, you get into a lot of this stuff in the book about the way doom plays on our brains. And that's, I, I see that everywhere in these conversations. I agree with you entirely that most Tesla's, you know, if you're in Ohio, you drive a coal powered car, you know, um, never mind if you're in China. Um, it's 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 the magical thinking that you know we saw a glimpse of with the pandemic, but that's not the only thing that induces magical thinking. What well, one of the books that made a huge impression on me when I was an undergraduate was Keith Thomas's Religion and the Decline of Magic, and I started to fantasize about a book called Science and the Revival of Magic, because I think that the process Keith Thomas described was the process whereby in England, over a period of about 200 years, people went from believing in witches and fairies and all the rest of it to starting to, to think in a more scientific way about the natural world. And that really was a sort of 1600 to 1800 transition. I sometimes wonder if we're about to turn this on its head by talking a lot about science, but in fact, engaging in ever more magical forms of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is one of the, the troubling features of, of contemporary American culture, that those who talk most loudly about science uh, seem actually least to understand it, uh, and in particular to understand its, its uncertainties uh, and, and the very fact that there is no monolithic thing called the science. I mean, the ironies of history are wonderful, aren't they? It's January 2020, and I'm at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and they've just published the Global Risk Report. They do this every year. What are the, cons- what are the consensus global risks in 2020 for the first time in 20 years? All four are climate-related. <laughs> and the agenda of the conference is entirely devoted to climate change uh, with a little bit of probably uh, uh, critical race theory in the, in the sidelines somewhere. ESG, 
uh, environment, uh, social responsibility or equity and, and corporate governance, all of that stuff. And there's a pandemic already underway. I'm wandering around the Swiss conference hall going, anybody want to talk about the, the pandemic? <laughs> anybody anybody noticed the pandemic? And then I look in the in the list of participants, and there are three people from Wuhan on the list. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> I'm at the super spreader event of the century. Uh, this is nuts. But it was surreal because Greta Thunberg arrives and Greta Thunberg goes, it is not enough for you to reduce your emissions. She starts talking like a Dalek out of Doctor <laughs> Who. You have to, you have to cut them uh, immediately, like immediately to nothing. And 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 history's listening, and history goes, okay, let's do that. So the pandemic causes, first in China, then in Europe, and then in North America, drastic reductions in emissions because we have to shut the economy down. Right. And so you get just what Greta Thunberg asked for and the biggest economic and fastest economic crisis on record. So I'm, I'm watching all of this thinking, this is how history works. It's the irony that, that it would take a gibbon to do full justice <laughs> to. The, the, she actually got her wish granted. And the effects, of course, in terms of social and economic disruption were, were colossal. And we're going to be living with them for, for years to come. Because in order to offset the massive supply shock, we then had to spend we had to plant the magic money tree and start hosing water on it and, and, and printing money on rates that I think are entirely unprecedented in peacetime. That's, that's the thing that's fascinating to me. So out of this endless recitation that the end is nigh, which so reminds me of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and Beyond the Fringe, now is the end, perish the world. We keep on having this conversation about the end of the world. And you know that while we're focusing all our efforts on getting together in Glasgow to discuss the desperate need to do the following to reduce CO2 emissions, some other disaster is just brewing. It's just waiting in the wings. Um, you know my favorite moment of irony that I'm almost looking forward to? It's when volcanic activity in the, in, on the planet returns to the levels that we haven't seen since 1815. I mean, there haven't been really big volcanic eruptions since Tambora 1815. And if you go back to the late 1100s, to the late 1200s, just massive amounts of volcanic activity that caused the earth to become much, much cooler. And I keep thinking maybe it was spending too long in Montana. If that Yellowstone supervolcano goes up, if we have that kind of level of volcanic activity again, then global cooling will be the problem. And we'll, we'll have to scrap our elaborate plans for, for climate change because man-made climate change will be completely blown away by what geology can do. Um, two things. I worry about the caldera a great deal. That's that. That's one of my scenarios. I'm terrified of. Um, but second, the dead giveaway at Davos that you should have picked up on was the swag bag that all you fat cats gets. Everyone had a monkey's paw in it, and <laughs> <laughs> that's how we got the wish granted. Um, Neil Ferguson, uh, you've been very generous. We told you we would only take an hour of your time. We've gone a little over. Um, love to have you back. Get some rest. But thank you very much for doing this. The book is Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe, and we'll put all the relevant things that we can figure out in the show notes for people. Um, but it's, it really is a great, great piece of work. Jonah, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. To yeah. talk thank to you. you. Really appreciate it. Okay, so uh, Neil has, has left the, uh, um, the studio, and I didn't get to have him do his uh, world-famous 
Sean Connery impersonation, but you know, maybe, maybe if people stuck around, they would, you know, maybe they, maybe they'll come back. I don't know. But, um, I was very serious about the book. Um, and I was, I always try to be honest with people with whether, whether or not I've read the book, unlike a lot of, you know, interviewers who pretend, um, I just dove into it over the last couple of days and hunted and pecked. And there's just an enormous amount of really useful stuff and interesting stuff in there. And, um, we could have gone a dozen different directions. Uh, I have my disagreements about some stuff. I mean, I think there's going to be more of a long tail culturally about the, the shutdowns than, than, than he does. And I'm less confident, as I said, about the, the hang time about zoom stuff and, and virtual stuff. I think, uh, there's a real pent up demand for, for, getting back to some of that travel related stuff, even in the business world, but who knows? I could be entirely wrong. Um, I hope I'm right. You know, there's sometimes I hope I'm wrong about things, but I, this is one of these things where I hope I'm right. Cause I think that was one of the better things about professional life. If you were able to travel to interesting places. Um, and other than that, uh, great to have him back on. We will have him on again. We were talking after the, after we stopped recording about maybe cause he was talking about, one of the boons of the pandemic was that he got to um, shelter in place and just and just read and write for eighteen months, and he couldn't understand how much travel I had done because we did all these road trips. And um, it gave me the idea of maybe just doing a podcast about how to be a historian and how weird that life is, and how you kind of have to be a bit of a recluse to be able to do that. I think that'd be fun, and he liked the idea. Um, and uh, that's all I got. So. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. Uh, this is a podcast, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>